Hello and welcome to the Around the Kitchen Table podcast with your hosts, Morgan, Nozzy, and Tafadzwa Nyamwa. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this podcast. Our podcast today is on a topic that I've been very curious about, and it is basically on adoption, fostering, and special guardianship orders. And I have my my partners in crime, I've got Morgan and Tafadzor, who will be joining us on this podcast. And then I have four special guests. So the first special guest that we have is um, Dombi, and she is a social worker. She has sat on fostering panels in the past, and she's worked with foster carers, foster parents. Um, we also have Becca, who um, she'll introduce herself, and she'll tell us about her experience of adopting children. We have um, Mr. Palmer, and Mr. Palmer has a special guardianship order for his daughter. And then we have Paula, who's had quite a lot of experience and she's, um, she's fostered in the past and she has adopted. So welcome everyone uh, to our podcast. And I'm looking forward to hearing from everyone. Um, Morgan and I will just ask you questions as we go along. But I think I'm going to start with Paula. And Paula, would you like to just um, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, tell us about your journey? Okay, right. So um, my background originally was in mental health. Um, I used to work um, within residential social work with young adults with mental health um, difficulties. And um, I did that for a number of years. And that, that I, you know, I really enjoyed that type of work and involvement. Um, but in my heart, there was always a little something there for fostering. And it was something that I wanted to do. Um, I was single at the time and, um, and basically thought, I don't know if I would be accepted as a single person. Um, but I thought I would inquire about it. And, um, I attended a, um, an open day basically about fostering and basically was totally blown away by the fact that this is something I really need to do and decided to pursue it. So while I was still working, um, at the back of my mind I knew that this was the next step for me so I um yeah so I went down the road of, of fostering um took a while to go through the process but um but yes that was um the road that I took fostering I did for about nine years and um fostered mainly short term but short term <laughs> was um a range of weeks to months to years um depending on the individual child that i i was looking after um mainly um yeah i did under 11s so um so that was the age group that, that i fostered and most of the children that i looked after returned home either to their parent or they return to family. Um, though one, from what I recall, probably went to 
another foster carer and then eventually I think went to residential um but along the journey um a child came to me at the age of five who the plan was to um to be adopted um part of a sibling of two but they were going to be separated and um that was the plan so I but originally it was a foster placement the ultimate goal was to be adoption but the child needed to be placed um in a separate home so I I um I fostered for three years and as the plan unfolded um I decided to take up the challenge to adopt and so I adopted the little boy and he's now a big grown man well he's 20 now wow that's amazing so um so yes that was my journey from fostering to adoption and definitely you know it's something that I believe people more people should do really mm-hmm. right. you know um and and a, and a point of note I think for um for me was that I didn't think as a single person that I would have been stay accepted to foster or necessarily to adopt because Mm. I think you know the ideal would be you know two-parent family blah 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 you know um so yeah so I was pleasantly surprised that you know that they were willing to to accept me um I was in my mid-30s at the time I think when I started on the journey Mm-hmm. um so so yes look like you're saying about the article of someone who's like 21 um I do know somebody who well actually it was my my son's cousin I think was considered to adopt him and she was probably around that age um however at the time I think she then had a child so I think it was then considered that that would probably be too much for her to manage at the time. But I know it was a consideration. And I thought at the time, you know, wow, she's quite young and she's willing to take on this responsibility, mm-hmm. you know, but I have a lot of respect for her for, for being willing as a part of the family to take that, you know, to consider taking that on, yeah. you know, as a responsibility. But, you know, things didn't work out that way. But, but yeah, so that's me in a nutshell. Awesome. That's such a, such a lovely story. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, I'm going to move on to Becca because, I mean, I spoke to Becca so many times about um, her experience and she's adopted three children. So, Becca, do you want to just give us a bit of a background to how your journey unfolded? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I think, I think for us, um, I uh, married probably at the age that some of these people are, are considering adoption, which is quite a scary thought, but um, yeah, I'm married at 21 and um, uh, as life progressed, uh, obviously started thinking about having a family 
Um, and, and for us, it just felt really important to explore all the different options around family that actually it's very easy, isn't it, to think of um, the, the traditional route, really, of, um, well, well, in our case, marriage and then and then along come the children and all that sort of thing. So for us, it, we just felt a, a real um, desire to explore different options and to see what we could do. Um, for me, I'd always had it really, really heavy in my heart um, and really planted, I think, from quite a young age that actually um, adoption was a, a, a very real possibility, even before I really knew what that meant, I think. Um, and my husband um, had experience within his family. He had a, an adopted sister who moved in with them. Um, I think that was a really uh, quite a tough placement. Um, and so actually between us, we had to explore me being very, very enthusiastic and him having his eyes opened and actually knowing the reality of what it could be like. <laughs> um, so it was quite a journey for us to, to reconcile our two different sort of experiences. Or, or for me, it was only a thought, really, but, but a very strong thought and feeling within me. Um, so we, we spent a bit of time exploring that together. Um, we then went on and obviously went through the, the, um, the process of um, panels and um, selection process and then placement process. Um, and, and I think all the way through, we, we just knew deep down that this was the way forward for us. Um, and that's been really important for us over the years as you know, life hasn't always been straightforward with, with the three children. Um, and to have that real sense of this is, this is right, this is what's meant to be, has been so important for us to be able to hold on to that. Mm. So, yeah, so for us, we were, I was early 30s um, when we actually had children placed with us. It, uh, then it was under the old sort of system, as it were, things have changed a lot since then. Um, and it was probably about three years from start to finish when we had to go, th first of all, through the, the um, panel to say that we could adopt. Um, and then obviously to go through to placement was about another year and a half. Um, yeah, so so for us, it was quite a lengthy journey. Um, and, and I think all the time, just trying to discern what's right. Um, it's so hard when you look at so many children in need and there's a bit of your heart that thinks I want to take them all. Um, but for us, we, we knew from the outset, we were, when we, when we prayed and when we pictured our family, we were looking at a, a sibling group um of two or three um our social work was very definitely trying to steer us towards two and probably for very good reason <laughs> um, and uh, they sent us off to meet a family who had adopted three and we came home going that is it that is what we want to do um and i think we were supposed to come back going oh my goodness no um but uh, and, and it all went from there really so that's where we are okay now it's very interesting because so we've talked about adoption. That process sounds quite long, actually, like the three-year process. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it may well be quicker now. I'm sure others in this group can talk more knowledgeably about how it works now. But we had to. It was about a year and a half of meeting with a social worker, um, and and obviously sort of preparing us, and then having to go to panel, um, and then after that, it was about a year and a half to placement. Um, that, I mean, that could have been quicker, that bit. Um, but I, I think we, as I say, we, we had a really strong feeling and, and we, were, we were looking for what felt right. And, and it, it took a while, um, but it, it obviously was so worth getting that bit right and <laughs> not rushing it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I guess, Paula, because you had maybe fostered and then you went on to adopt a child that you'd been fostering. I mean, it, it might not seem like a long process, but it was actually still quite a process. I guess. Yes, um, there were two different 
processes because um, in order to foster, um, I think, I'm trying to think back now. Um, yeah, it probably took about a year and a half probably with all the, you know, the different processes of the interviews and then the assessment and then the training and, do you know what I mean? And then the final, um, yeah, going through the process for panel. So it probably took about a year and a half for that. And then I think pretty much after, say that finished at the beginning of the year but I think a couple of months maybe two three months after that I got my first placement and mm. um, so the placement was not long after um, and then for the adoption that was another set of because that was some years later mm. um, that was the process to go through for for the adoption um, and that probably took about a year as well okay. um, yeah or just under so so yeah it, it did take time it did take time but I mean I, I hear things have um speeded up somewhat I hear I don't know <laughs> yeah, I want to just jump in because you're you've got a bit more insight to like the more current situation for adopters yeah I mean it, it definitely is a lot quicker now so it can take up to about six months now to be approved as an adopter although it can take a little bit longer sometimes obviously that depends on the situation but also there is it still remains that there is no say how long it will take for you to be matched with a, a child so that can take well it's, it's difficult to say because it's all about um what the adopters are looking for and um the age range they're um you know they're after and also just be matched with the right child for that family so so that has to be right. So there's no time scale on that, really. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it could take as long as it takes. Right. So um, Mr. Palmer has got a slightly different story, um, kind of similar to adoption, I think. Um, but you've got a special guardianship order, and I, I was actually quite privileged to be able to be a part of that process. But can you just talk to us about the differences between a special guardianship order, adoption, and fostering? and like your experience in that process? Yeah, well, so I came into this obviously having working in, in as a family support worker. I was very familiar with this process and situations. Anyway, um, the difficulty for me, I would say, is that trying to detach my work from going through the process as a viable candidate really was a struggle to try and appear or be um, normal it's just and not be in a, a place where um, I'm coming across indifferent or coming across all knowledgeable or whatever so that was a real struggle for me but the process itself I felt the process was very straightforward um, and I would say easy compared to what I've seen before. Now, I do not know if that's because I knew, I knew the people that was carrying out my assessment and they knew me. So it made it a bit easier for me to go through the process. Um, whereas with Catherine, if you ask Catherine how she felt about the process, she would say she was nerve-wracking. It was very nerve-wracking. She was uncertain. She didn't know what to expect. And although I talked 
talk about some of the things, the reality of which she still struggles with. Um, and it's a very emotional process she viewed it as. Whereas for me, I just took it in stride because I knew what was coming, I knew what would happen, all those kind of things. So, I mean, that, that in itself was a very interesting thing when I spoke to her to find out what her experience was. And I've never actually asked that until you sent me that invite to join you. It's only t last night I've asked her what her experience felt like. It just completely did not resonate with me. But yeah, so that that's as a family support worker, advocating for families to stay together. Um, when the opportunity was presented for me to become a special guardian, it would have been very hypocritical of me to then say, well, I, I can't. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, a sense of being obliged to, to, to take on the responsibility, and obviously because it was a family member, um, I was taking on the responsibility for, I mean, I did it with all joy. Um, I agreed with all joy and I had to take on that responsibility. Um, the process itself, yeah, it took about four or five months and that was in 2015. So yeah, it took about four to five months to go to court and get everything um, completed. Can you explain what the difference is between a special guardianship order and a yeah. Yeah, so I mean, special guardianship is more like adoption. However, it's a step-down version of adoption. Um, so whereas you have adoption that is permanent, um, special guardian have some permanency in that the child is with you until they're 18, um, legally in your care until they're 18. Uh, whereas obviously adoption, the well, the when the child becomes an adult, they're an adult, but the child is yours permanently as whereas obviously foster care the child is still in a temporary arrangement so there is some permanency there is a lot not some there is a significant permanency with special guardianship that does not exist with foster care um, and that does exist with um, adoption so that was that's one of the key things um, in terms of parental responsibility as well Obviously, as foster carers, I, I know you have very limited parental say or responsibility in what, in terms of the children's life or livelihood, their well-being. Whereas with adoption and special, well, with adoption, the child is young. But with special guardianship, you as a guardian have more say um, in, in the child's well-being, in the child's care. Basically, uh, you take the place of the local authority um, in terms of the child's care needs and, um, and well-being. So basically, the whole process comes together. You, whereas the, the child was in care under the local authority, now as a special guardian, you take the place of the local authority in that regard. Um, so there is some level of consent that you liaise with, I guess, or consult with in terms of the biological parents. Um, however, that consent does not override your responsibility to carry out that um, function that the court has given you. Um, so you do consult on certain things with the parents, but you still have that overall responsibility to parent that child. Uh, what other thing? Tell me, what other thing am I missing? 
sorry, it took me a little while to unmute there. Um, I think you pretty much covered it, really. Um, yeah, they are, foster care is less um, permanent. Again, the child remains in the care system, so it's considered a looked-after child. So in, in with fostering, the local authority actually share parental responsibility with the parents. Um, in most cases, although in some cases it is voluntary, where parents voluntarily place the child in care under what they call this, um, Section 20 of the Children Act, 1989. Mm -hmm. um, the child has a social worker with fostering as well. You have to see them regularly, review their care plan. Um, again, fostering can be short-term, short it can be long-term, um, depending on the circumstances. And so until the child's 18, um, the child can maintain contact with their birth family. It's actually strongly encouraged in foster, in foster care just to maintain um, their identity. And yeah, the foster carer receives allowance as well to care for that child. So, yeah. I'll with adoption benefits, right. you won't you wouldn't that the child becomes yours and you won't yeah. get you won't receive any allowances um if, when you when you I think adoption. i think that that actually depends on the circumstances as well because um i think the circumstances that i was in and the needs of of the child that i had um that was negotiated and so the local authority actually did provide some support and an allowance. And that, that's normally done in like a set of package, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. It, yeah, it was a support package. Yeah. yeah. Right. So with special guardianship, of course, there is. Um, so it's still a placement. So throughout the placement, there is support that is given, although the local authority is not involved in child's life per se anymore um there is a support package that goes with the child for the duration of a placement and with adoption as well there's also post-adoption support available to adoptives um for the time the child is in their care so um there's all there is support while the child is yours as an adoptive parent there is post-adoption support as well and certainly over, over the years we've tapped into the post-adoption support and, and in fact they still fund um, therapies for our children so so it's you know, initially we we didn't need anything and then even though we've moved local authorities we've managed to to access funding for for different pieces of work um, with, the, with the children as they've needed it over the years um, so even sort of 11 years later that's still <laughs> still there as and when we need it um, that's actually quite good to know because you almost think when you adopt, in, in my mind I was thinking I'm adopting a child and it's, it's just my, it's up to me to make sure that I find all the support. But it's actually quite good to know that, you know, whatever route you take, there's always a support network around you. Um, yeah. I think one of the, 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 the key things is that the government, for example, or the local authorities want to, placements to work so anything that families would need to make that placement work whether it's adoption or guardianship or fostering that consultation can be had right yeah and and i would say though you need to have that conversation yes because they no disrespect to social workers <laughs> but um People are not always, you're not always going to be told yeah. um, about, about what support you can have. I mean, 
I can tell you a little story about a situation I was in when I was kind of blown away. <laughs> um, this was when I was fostering and I had two children at the time. They, they're not siblings, so I, I don't know what the situation is now, whether you can sort of foster, you know, they're not, they're not siblings. But what, I had one initially and then they, wanted, they needed to place another child and I was able to, to have that child. So I had two different children, same borough, but they were actually at two different schools um, and two different ages. And I had to basically, <laughs> uh, one was younger, I was at nursery, the other one was at primary school, two different areas, they were in school and I had to get them to school. And it was a nightmare getting them to school, getting them from school. And I was doing this. I don't drive. And I was doing this by bus. I was in London. But <laughs> at the end of the day, it was draining and exhausting, to say the least. And they, you know, everybody knew this. But nobody said anything. Yeah, because I was doing it. And then um, the, I, I was due to go away for a break and I was, cause it was prearranged. I had one child who the child I originally had cause that was the arrangement. But then the second child who I had more recently, I couldn't accommodate that child cause it was already pre-booked. So the child, the second child needed to be placed temporarily um, in a, a placement just for the time that I was away so when I went to to the new you know doing introductions and you know this is this is the child and they're spending time with with the new foster carer and I explained to the foster carer you know the fact that the child needs to go to this particular nursery and the distance and so forth and they said well I'm not doing that you know um I'm gonna get a cab and I'm like what <laughs> and it's like no I'll arrange and they'll sort it out I'm like, what? <laughs> and it's like, it was news to me. You know, I have been doing this for so long and being exhausted. Everybody knew this, but nobody piped up and said, oh, let's make your life a little bit easier, you know. And so I was shocked at what was possible, you know. I didn't know and nobody educated me what was possible it was this foster care who actually said well I'm not going to do it like that you know because that is just not workable for me um, and got the help that that was needed in order to provide that support so you know so next time around I was informed <laughs> and and then when I was in a similar situation I said well if you want to have that placement then you need to make sure you put this in place because otherwise I'm going to be run ragged um, and so the next time around when I had a similar situation they did accommodate with the transport and so forth so I'm saying there are things that you don't know at times as a, as a foster carer or maybe even as a, an adopter that is available but you're not going to be necessarily told that it is um maybe things have changed but i'm just saying that you know it's important i think to 
to ask for what you need and don't suffer. I, I do share that sentiment because, um, again, for me, because I knew this, this somewhat the system and knew the process, I, there were things that I knew I needed to ask for or have in place. Um, and I, I remember having a conversation with the assessor once and she was saying that she had just actually did a family recently and the package that they got was really really insignificant but they didn't ask and she was being pressured not to push for them um so as a result <laughs> they got a very less package that i'm sure maybe things have changed now in terms of working arrangement but th this is the part where i think it's important to be informed so you make a, a very clear decision when you decide to foster or you decide to, to do a special guardianship or adopt informed of what should be made available to you and have that conversation, yeah. So do you think it's just a case of actually, well, I guess, doing all the research before and just, like, when you have a question, just ask. And speaking to people, yeah, and ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Mm. I mean, social workers are busy people. I'm not speaking because I'm getting into the profession, but <laughs> social workers are busy people, not necessarily that they may forget. I mean, if you don't ask sometimes, I mean, you just need to ask questions. Or they might assume that you don't need the support, maybe. So, you know, just, you know, you carry on. But I mean, so uh, um, Tommy can speak to this. I mean, when, when you're conducting your assessments, I mean, these things should be picked up in the assessments. Um, and in while the assessment is happening, those questions can come out and, or should come out so you get more clarification on the situation. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Those questions should be really would usually be coming up within that assessment where um, all of those things can be clarified. But certainly, I think there's definitely. I think I don't know whether that was the case for you, um, Paula, but there are you know more kind of fostering networks now in terms of support for people who are fostering, and you can link up with other foster carers and have support groups and things like that, and be able to share those have those kind of discussions. We maybe with other foster carers who might be a bit more experienced. Um, yeah, there's the foster network as well that can offer advocacy as well for foster carers. So it's just being able to tap into those um, that support because um, sadly, unfortunately, there probably are situations where that might happen. Um, things get missed, but yeah, there is support out there. I think I think our experience as well was that actually we didn't know what support we needed. You know, we we sort of trundled along our lives quite happily and then suddenly we had a three four and five year old move in and it was only like a little way down the road that actually the the thought around actually how are we going to get them all to school or what's what do we need and, and I think what impressed us actually is the wheels for us re really sort of well they didn't come off but you know it really got tough actually when our eldest had to transition from primary to secondary which I think for him was just such a traumatic experience you know that the idea of change and change of routine and the unknown ahead is where you know we actually were relatively okay up until that point um and and actually we were really impressed as I say I think we didn't notice to start with how hard we were beginning to find it um and and because it's day by day existence isn't it and you you, you take on a little bit more a little bit more but as soon as we put up the the flag and went right we are really struggling here 
um, that actually the system really kicked in and we, within you know, days we, we had sort of support, we had phone calls, we had social workers coming around in a really positive way, coming to, to sort of reassess and, and to help us through that. So, so as I say, I think we perhaps didn't spot early enough um, the support that we might have found helpful, but actually as soon as we, we put out the plea um, that, that it was there for us, which was just brilliant. Yeah, I wanted to ask, um, just before we get deeper into the conversation, from a point of, from my point of view of not knowing anything really about the system at all, what are the kind of things that are taken into consideration when it comes to eligibility to either be a fosterer or for adoption or special guardianship? So, I mean, for special, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, Dombey's uh, sat on fostering panels. Oh, yes, yeah, so let Dombey go first. I don't know if you want to just say a little bit about what you would look for when you're sat on your panels. Yeah, so in for foster care, it's really, you know, the main qualities just are really about someone having a genuine interest in children and young people and, um, you know, really want to focus on the child's best interests and having empathy you know good listening skills perseverance when things get tough that's a really important one because a lot of these children you know they're coming with so much trauma and Mm. so many attachment you know difficulties as well um just being able to be flexible and adaptable and patient having a sense of humor you know being a stability and consistency you know having having that in your personal life as well Mm. um and just be able to guide and provide discipline, routines, boundaries, um, and being also being able to look after yourself emotionally and stay well, knowing when you're not coping and being able to know when you need help and being able to ask about help. Um, just and a willingness to work with other people in the child's life because with fostering, it's you know that child doesn't become yours. Mm-hmm. Um, that child is still has parents. You know they're still possibly sometimes there's a plan for that child to maybe return to the um to their birth family um and it's about a willingness to work with professionals as well the people around that child as well and being able to take on advice and you know i think on a practical sense just being able to actually have a spare room for that child to sleep in <laughs> that's just the basic but yeah i mean it's not about it's not about your age it's not about whether you're um married or single or you know anyone can be a foster carer right. um, so it's um i think there is an age limit of 21 i think um as well for that so but um yeah it's just being really having a genuine passion for young people and um wanting to see them through right difficult yeah. and i think just before Kish, um mr palmer says something i think that's where misconception comes from as well because i think there's a, a common thought that you have to be of a certain age and earning a certain amount and you know be married and have that model family structure in order to to bring another or to bring a child into that so no it's definitely interesting to know yeah i think what the local authority looks for is stability as well um, do you have a stable home or stable environment? And that is quite key. Um, all what Tommy said is, is applies to special guardianship. However, I think the only caveat is special guardianship generally tends to follow the pattern of trying to find a viability within the family first. Um, so it goes like family, 
close friends, foster carers who probably have been caring for a child for more than a year. Mm. So generally, that's kind of the flow it takes before any other is, is considered. So the aim is to keep the child within the family network, mm. if possible, or if a viable candidate within the family is found. So family members, close friends, foster carers, um, in that kind of sequence. Um, it doesn't have to be in that sequence, but as long as there's a viable candidate within that network, ideally. Okay. Um, so, yeah. One of the things that I, I would say on that is that, um, like, my, my son, I think, in his situation, um, his aunt, one of his aunts, initially was looking to... Um, to look after him and then I think then his cousin which was her daughter um but but neither of those um were able to in the end for for various reasons were able mm. to pursue um that any further and I think one of the things that got missed I think you, you know like the frequent changes of social workers became an issue so it's like the involvement of the family at that stage kind of got missed so when I think some I don't know another social worker took over and so forth there was no actual family involvement it was like oh well the family can't you know can't have him so um, we're just going to look down the road of adoption so you know when he was with me I was kind of thinking well you know you need to pursue contact with the family even though he you know he's not able to stay with them but it's likely that they would still want contact with him even though um they they can't actually look after him but they would still want that involvement if they're given an opportunity and so i think with the, the change of social worker again that social worker began to reconnect with the family mm. and found that actually the aunt had still wanted to be in contact the grandmother had still wanted to be in contact, you know, he's got older brother and sister, you know, um, a younger sister, all of these family members had wanted to be in contact, but did not know who to um, go through to, to make that connection, because I think they'd gone to the local authority and they wouldn't give them information and so forth about where he was placed and so forth. So it became a bit, you know, a bit difficult, but thank goodness it became untangled. <laughs> and so we were able to reestablish those connections um, and, you know, and continued to have contact. Um, and that continued through fostering and through adoption all the way through. So, you know, he has open contact with all of his family all the time, basically. And that has worked really well. I mean, yeah, that has really worked really well. Apart from his, yeah, like his, his mum passed away um, subsequently. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's been very positive. And I think for him, it's really helped his identity and his stability for him to have contact with his family in a very open way. Becca, in terms of the qualities um, for adoption, would you say it's just the same sort of thing then, the same sort of expectations? Is anything different or 
that, I mean, I, I guess adoption is more permanent. So is there anything extra that they look for to what has been mentioned already? Um, I think for you to have support and for you to be able to have a network of support is really important because um, you're talking about the long the long-term plan and being able to, to navigate the different stages of life um, and being able to deal with, you know, not just the younger years, but the teenage years and, and going into adulthood. So being able to navigate all of that and having support. So having a strong network of support, whether through, you know, my own family or friends was really important to know that people were going to be there for me especially as a single woman and also because I was adopting a boy I needed to know that I had like male role models in in my circle um who would be willing to be hands-on and involved so um and that has been really crucial so my brother has, has been always involved and I've got some friends who who have been quite key you know, in, in being there as men, you know, um, as well as, you know, um, other family members. So I think that's been quite key. Um, I've got a, a, a question that's slightly different. So we're talking about, um, like, these qualities for adopting. I, I, I know that I work with Becca, so I know that obviously when you, you can be a working parent. But when you're fostering, can you be a working foster parent or is that what you just do is that is that the job within itself or you know um okay for me um i was working prior to to fostering um and i was wondering myself as to whether or not i could continue working so i i went down from full-time to part-time initially just to to see and um and then when I started, when I had a placement, um, they said, you know, it would be recommended not to be working because there's so many different components of responsibilities. You have meetings, you have case conferences, you have contact to facilitate those. You, you know, you've got appointments, maybe health appointments. You know, there's just so many things that you need to be able to be available for, for the needs of the child. You know, sometimes, you know, education, you need to have meetings. So it depends on the need of the child. There could be so many different things that you've got to go to that if you were actually working, it may um, be a bit of a problem. So at the time, they were recommending that it would be better for me not to. Um, so I, I fostered full time. Becca, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think um, obviously when, when the children are placed, you, you get the um, adoption leave, which is the equivalent to, um, to a maternity leave. Um, so I actually took a full year. Um, it, I was allowed sort of the statutory adoption leave. I could then take a bit of unpaid leave as well. So I had a year off, um, which was absolutely essential, I think, at that point. Um, and I'd say... Only now, I would say, um, I've got sort of teenagers now, um, I still only work half time. And I know it's a very, very personal decision. But for me, I couldn't do more than that. 
I don't think, because so just, just like Paula was saying, um, I've got one with special needs, I've got one needing, well, two needing therapy. I've, you know, or by the time you've been to all those meetings, done the paperwork for them, which is also consuming, um, that actually, and, and hopefully you created a bit of time for yourself, and then I've got my own uh, marriage to invest in, and all the rest of it, that actually it, it just, I couldn't contemplate um, sort of full-time work. And I think, I think the other thing that I'm very aware of is that all three of ours, um, developmentally and emotionally are not at age to uh, what you would expect from them so very very simple practical things like a lot a lot of children they get to year seven they're given their front door key they can let themselves in when they come home that wasn't the case for ours and and in fact we're still probably five years later we're just embarking on that process of them actually being able to have that level of independence interaction with each other without an adult being there responsibility all those sorts of things the organizational skills around it so so actually um just on a very practical level to keep our family functioning it i think it needs a lot more input um and and then you put add on top of that small things which other children are perhaps more resilient to or can cope with on a daily basis you know ours might come home and a really small thing can trigger a massive reaction and i think the last thing that i wanted was not to feel i had that time for them that, that actually I need I need to be able to deal with those emotions without in the back of my head thinking and oh, I should be doing this for work or I should be doing that so I know every every family functions differently but for us we'd made a commitment to these young people of children and now young people and actually we wanted to honor that and to yeah we it's no good offering five years of stability and then saying right I'm off to work now you're on your own so um we that's how we've made it work <laughs> um, yeah. but obviously yeah, totally. this will yeah, as I say, I think I think they they need as I say small things that other other children wouldn't even bat an eyelid at, and and sometimes you get behaviours that you cannot place, and then eventually after you've had the hot chocolate and the chocolate biscuit and the hug and the everything else, they go, oh well actually, and there you are, and you can deal with it. But if you haven't got that time, yeah. then um, mm-hmm. well I don't know how you <laughs> how you get to the bottom of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, Kish, did you want to add anything to that? No, I am I, always, you know, amazed by the work of foster carers because it is a very committed role. Um, <laughs> the work that they do cannot be underestimated. It's a lot of work. Um, so if a family is able to really commit in that way to realise that um, they need to take that time to invest in the well-being and development of the children, it's important for them to do that. And obviously, social work, so social workers and their team would obviously support them again through consultation to know do they need respite, when they need respite, and those kind of things. So it's a, it is a committed role, and I, I always say don't go into it if you're not going to commit to the process, because obviously the young the, ch- the children in the, is going to suffer in the process. So it's important to realize it is a committed role, and hence why it's important. Again, for people to really um, take on the opportunity they can. Yeah. I like it, it is a rewarding opportunity. Um, I like what Paul said about being adaptable. So, you know, you went down to part-time, then you decided to do it full-time. And I think that adaptability is really important because you have to look at the needs of the children. Um, I just want to yeah. that's something that Paula was talking about as well, because you talked about, you know, how your son has contact with his family. Um, 
and how you were able to foster that, like through the fostering process and then through adoption. Is that something that um, you would do as well with a special guardianship order or through adoption? Is there an expectation that you have to maintain contact with the child? Or how does it differ also with the child's parents or biological family? I mean, I know Kish, you are actually family, um, but in terms of other, like, you know, like biological mother, father, etc., is there an expectation that you have to maintain those links or, or does it vary? Like, how does it work in the different situations? Mm. I think it varies. I mean, I can only speak about my um, immediate experience, really. Um, in, in our situation, there, there's been no contact with father. He'd never been in the picture from, from the very beginning. Um, but mother was in the picture. But that was very inconsistent. And that became a problem, especially when he was younger. Um, contact would be set up and then mum wouldn't turn up. So that then became obviously quite traumatic and quite difficult. Um, but he had contact and consistent contact with other family members. Um, so aunt, grandmother, older siblings, younger sibling. And so, you know, that, that was something that was from the fostering point of view, which we continued in adoption. Um, and I think it can be more of a letterbox contact, which is often the thing that I think is set up with social work so the letterbox contact is you know they can write and correspond that way and then maybe um, a couple times a year they could have a, a, an actual face-to-face meetup um, I know that has happened in some cases um, but it varies I think very much it varies with each family situation and the kind of circumstances um, that that there is um yeah yeah for, for us we um um i remember in the, in the training sessions before um before approval even there was a whole training session on um parental contact and i remember thinking yeah, yeah yeah completely cool with this get it yeah of course it's really essential and then uh, and then actually when it came to it i suddenly realized that actually my personal feelings perhaps weren't quite in line <laughs> with with my head <laughs> you know I could see the logic of it but actually what my heart was telling me was something completely different um and and actually we we had the opportunity to meet um the birth mother um during the sort of um getting to know each other weekend we had a week where we went and lived near near the foster carers and as part of that process we met um, with the birth mother and I have to say, I wasn't altogether easy with that as, as an idea. However, I would say to anyone who has the opportunity, definitely take it. It was, it was absolutely invaluable because it gave us snippets of information about the children, why they chose the names they chose, um, all sorts of little things that we wouldn't otherwise have known. Um, and it also helped us as, as children got older and they've asked more questions, you know, just so actually yeah, we met your birth mom and she wasn't, she, she wasn't a bad woman. She wasn't, you know, it's, it's you know, for that, you know, this particular thing went wrong, but there's nothing, you know, she's a lovely woman. She loved you. You know, we could actually speak with a bit of knowledge 
um, about their birth mother, which I think has been invaluable over the years. Um, and I always have, um, well, there's less box contact set up. So those decisions are made um, sort of as part of the placement um, sort of at the time and, and what's, go what's going to happen in terms of contact. Um, and actually it's been very, very erratic. We've, we have an annual letter we send hours the same month each year and that goes via the social workers to the birth mother so she has no direct contact with us she doesn't know who, where we live she doesn't know our full names or anything um and and we we do that and in fact we get a real pleasure out of writing that letter because it makes us reflect on the year we you know what did we write last year how have we grown up how have we changed um and then and then actually um Sorry. <laughs> yeah, and um, but actually, what we get back is very erratic, which is not surprising because they came from a chaotic household. Um, and certainly, the first the first letter we got, the which was several years into placement, um, our two youngest were just not interested. They didn't want to look at it. They wanted nothing to do with it. So we respected that. Um, our oldest did, and actually, completely threw him off balance. Um, and for quite a long time, thankfully, we were in a therapy session at that time. So. <laughs> we have professional help available um and actually since then none of them have wanted to look at the letters at all so we've got them and they will be there for them for future if they ever want to to have a look it's there it helps us obviously be a bit more informed about what's going on with birth mother um but, but i can see it's important um and as i said I, I was just surprised at my own reaction that it's taken me quite some time to to I've always seen the value with my head, but actually when that letter arrives on the doormat, to, to actually not let my emotion get in the way of, of helping our children with that contact. Um. I think Tommy wants to comment on, on foster and contact. I'll talk with special guidance after. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, I was just listening to what Becca was saying and I, you know, it is something that I've, come across come across um a lot and um i think definitely contact is important for a child's identity isn't it and just thinking of fostering a lot of the times it has to be supervised because obviously children have been removed from their family homes for various reasons and there are risks linked to that and sometimes that can be quite difficult for children um while it's really positive and so you know where that when, when you have situations where a child is you know, feeling let down because their parents are turning up. Because some parents tend to have their own difficulties that they're trying to overcome. Um, it's not because they don't care or love them. They're just struggling. They, they just have their own struggles they're trying to, to deal with. And it's, it's the foster carers have to pick up those pieces a lot of the time, um, that, that disappointment and that letdown. Um, so it, it, can be, it can be quite complicated and quite difficult. And now with, with social media, um, even children that are adopted are finding their birth parents on on social media and that can you know that can come with a lot of you know come they can they can backfire in a lot of different ways and can really destabilize uh, those placements and and same as children in foster care so i think i think certainly now in this day and age with social media it brings a whole different realm to you know contact and actually how it can be can be quite tricky but on the whole, it is something that's promoted and it's positive for children to have that those connections and links to their families. Yeah. Yeah, with special guardianship, um, it's I think it's slightly different because when once you get an order, the court might say over the next couple of months, um, 
whatever amount of months, the court might say in its order that the child and the birth mother should have a few series of contacts on significant times or over a period of time as a means of the birth parents saying goodbye in a way to that child um, so that the placement can succeed on its own for a period of time. And then after that, um, it's down to the, the um, guardians and the birth mother, if any contact should then take place, how to make that arrangement. So it's then left to the guardian to negotiate that with the birth parent um, in the best interest of the child. Um, so that, that's kind of how it goes. And for me, obviously, because I'm family member, um, obviously, if I go to a family function, um, the child would be there, the birth mother might be there. Um, the court do not see that as a problem unless there was prior significant uh, things that uh, that is, should be noted. Um, if it's just a normal transition, then um, as the guardians, you have to manage that process in terms of contact um, arrangement. I'm going to bring in Tab. I think he's got a he's question. Got a question. Yeah, so I was just listening to um, you guys' you know, conversation prior to joining. And so I just had one question on my mind. So I was wondering, um, are you able to share your faith with your adopted, adopted children or are there any restrictions in regard to that? That's yeah. a well, we, we, um Go ahead. Yeah. We, we do, we do um, and have and continue to share our faith with our children. Um, I think the, the question we were asked again, sort of pre-placement, and I, which I understand is actually, what, what if your children reject your faith? Um, and, and it's one that I've discussed at length, my, my sister fosters and I've discussed at length with her because she's also a Christian. And, um, and, and I think we're, I, I think our feeling is that actually, as, as with any young person or any child, um, we knew ours were were open to coming to church with us, so that was something which actually the birth parents had um, so mentioned that actually interestingly in in their paperwork. So so we knew the starting point was was positive <laughs> for with our children. Um, and then actually, I think as any young person gets older, obviously they make their choices. And our our key feeling was we wanted it to be an informed choice. Yeah, that that actually. Um, as with any child as they get older and they think what do I value what's important what's not we wanted them to to to, to, to have that in an informed way um in fact what I was absolutely love our church community and I think part of it is belonging that actually it it forms a really important part of their of their support network they wouldn't call it that but we can see it <laughs> um and the other adults that have been supportive and to them both practically prayerfully um, and to us as a family and, and in fact um yeah they they we've been amazed actually at how open they've been to, to listening to us to talking with us um and how important church has been to them whether they stick with it that as i say as they get older that's um as it is for any young person i think really but, but i do think at the moment um they they find it a huge a huge um sort of support to them in in a way that other communities aren't always so they ours will go once a year on a christian holiday 
um, with people they, they don't always know. Um, and they're happy to do that because, uh, partly because of their faith and partly because actually when they can't come home, my eldest again, who's very, very perceptive, he went, it's different there because people actually talk to me and they've got time for me. And I can see in contrast to his everyday school experience, why that's different. Yeah. Um, Mr. Palmer, um, are there any restrictions on you sharing your faith? Again, for me, I think you probably... There was not, that question was asked of me, obviously, in terms of should the child reject um, your, your faith. Um, I guess in my situation, it's very different because obviously I had a child when she was five months old. So all she knows or would know is our church. Um, so she would grow up in that environment. Um, she can reject it. She, she would have that free will. Um, but all she would know, so there was no restriction on us taking her to church because we did have that conversation. And I, I mean, to be frank, they they realized it would be, it would not be productive, obviously, to keep the child aside and we go to church. No, it's not. That's we're a family, and as a family, we go to church, and that was understood with the assessors, and they didn't see that as an issue. Um, I don't know if there's other contexts where it might not be relevant, um, but for in my issue, it was not an issue. In my context, it was not an issue. In, in my situation, when I was fostering, um, I had a couple of different scenarios. So um, I, I had a... a a young boy that I was looking after and he didn't want to come to church I think he came once um he was maybe about 10 9 10 you know so he didn't come from a church background and um he he didn't want to come to church so therefore I had to make arrangements um so I couldn't go to church every week as I normally would do. Um, I made arrangements with the local authority to say, you know, um, this would obviously affect my, <laughs> my faith and my personal needs, my belief um, is for me to go. So we arranged um, childcare so that um, I would be able to go and um and then some weeks i wouldn't go so i'd probably alternate um and then i had another child who was of a different faith so he had a specific faith that he he would um go to church with his mum so um you know mum wanted him to go to continue to go to that church and that was fine it was christian faith um a different denomination um, so I would take him to church, um, to his church and cause there were also language issues cause he had his, um, within his family. So, um, so that church spoke in, um, in their native language as well. So I was able to take him to, to his church. That would be good for him culturally and spiritually. So, yeah, so you have to really respect, um, people's um, faith uh, so if they're from a, from a fostering point of view to be able to ensure that you're accommodating that 
and ensuring that they can maintain that um, even if it isn't what you personally may may believe um, but with my child as a, an adopted child um, yeah my, my son came with me to church was happy to do so and um, yeah I love church like how Becca says it's, it's a great support network it's it's like having lots of family so you know there's just a lot of other children that he he could play with and um you know as time went on you know have as have as good friends you know so over the years it's definitely been um really crucial i think and and a good support network for him as well um He's been pathfinders camping and you know sorts of stuff with um with, with the youth so so yeah um and as as you rightly said you know as they get older they have to make their own choices about their faith and and what they they choose to do so he may not attend churches as often now but um but he will still still go awesome um how about uh, just one more question about fostering specifically because um in terms of the, the sorts of children that you get into uh, in, as, as placement children um do you do they worry about what race you are are there any kind of barriers like you know as a black person you're only foster black children or you know do you would you take a child of any race into a foster placement do you have to be open to that or can you be specific about the sort of child you're going to foster like how does it work in, in that respect because I know with adoption you can adopt whatever child you like but with fostering is there like a well you know there's a shortage of like black foster parents therefore they will give you black children or do you know what I mean is there have, has that been like your experience my my experience was mainly um I I had placements um from um matched you know matched children so um black or mixed parentage um but i also had um white as well so um that had happened because there at the time i think it's at the time you have to look at what families are available what placements are available when the need occurs and on that particular occasion um i had a little boy um italian parentage and um and basically they didn't have a placement available that was more of a match so he came to me you know so it can vary but i think they really do look to match um families um as best as possible but you need to be open um do you have any stats at all that you'd like to share with us about you know children that require fostering or in the foster system do you have any statistics in Dombey to share with us um so in terms of stats they are quite i mean in terms of in the foster care system they are predominantly most children in the care system are of white background although um off the, off the figures you show that two-thirds of councils actually have a shortage of um black and ethnic minority foster carers um, so 23% of children in foster care in England as of the 31st of March 2019 came from a black and ethnic 
minority background and that's all from um offset figures um so there there is um there are, there are stats out there that suggest that black and ethnic minority children are um highly represented in the foster care system and there aren't as many black foster carers out there for children from black and ethnic minority backgrounds um especially mm -hmm. black especially black and um black british black african children as well is there like a limit to how far they'd go so like if you live in london would you could you foster from say like i don't know bedfordshire or you know berkshire or is it literally like they look for foster foster placements close to where children mm. live um Paula? yeah and yeah. Oh. I was just going to say, yeah, they usually try to look um, for placements as local to the child's home as possible, but that's not always possible. And sometimes we have to look beyond that. And especially where there's maybe significant risk to that child. Nowadays, there's child sexual, child sexual exploitation, child criminal exploitation, whereby children are being exploited within their, uh, that particular area that they were living in. So Sometimes we have to look at placements slightly further afield to um, reduce those risks for those children as well. So, but um, yeah, they, they, the, the aim is to try and keep the child as close to their home um, borough as possible or county, et cetera, as possible. But um, that's not always, because of the shortages, that's not always mm. possible, sadly. So if, if I may just talk about um, an example, for example, so following on what Paula said about um, matching children to their placement, where it's not always possible because of the shortages and, and the dynamics. Um, so there was a uh, family, for example, about 40 miles outside of Slough, I'll just keep it like that, 40 miles outside of Slough, some kids was placed at this placement. Um, the family is white background, the kids are Afro-Caribbean background. Um, the placement works fine, but the council felt that the kid's identity was probably getting missed. Um, however, the kid to that assessment, I don't know. Um, but what they did, because I think the foster carers was asking for some support in that area in terms of helping the kid's identity to be maintained in some way, because where they also live was predominantly white. Um, so what the council did, for example, was sent me um, to meet these boys, and um, you met those boys, I'm just talking generally, um, to meet these boys twice a week and just talk to them about um, being Afro-Caribbean, talk to them about things they're interested that they themselves always heard about, but they don't know about. So we had this back and forth and, and it really helped them. And there are things that you can ask the council again for support that would make the placement work even better, help the kids with that. And so in terms of race, I mean, you have to be open as Paula said, um, but there's a lot of support that can be offered now to families to make the placement work. Awesome. Yeah, thank you for that. I think, I think it's answered quite a few questions um, and dispelled a few of the myths around, you know, the, um, the different areas of looking after children um but as a final word i guess my question is would you recommend would you recommend it 
So Becca, from I mean, is it something that you can recommend to people? Or is it one of those things where it's like, well, you know, it's you have to look at your situation. But I mean, like from your personal experience and um, thinking about the challenges that you face and, you know, is it something that you would still recommend for people to explore? So I'll start with Becca. What do you think? What would you say? Absolutely. I, I absolutely would. And I think in a group and, and the questions we've only answered that we're going quite often it can come across it is the problems, the challenges. Um, and of course they're there, but actually what we haven't really touched on, obviously because of time and everything, is actually the absolute privilege that it is to help young people. And, and I, I do think it's a privilege and it is a challenge. A parent, being a parent is a challenge, isn't it? Full stop. And, and some of these children come with, with extra, I guess, and it's maybe a challenge plus. But um, I would absolutely recommend it. Yes. Uh, Mr. Palmer? Yeah, I, I highly recommend getting into supporting, whether it's a foster carer, special guardian, or introduction. I, I highly recommend it. Um, I feel very rewarded make, seeing that young girl grow up to be an, um, a decent enough young person. Um, sorry, she's still peeping around the corner. I don't understand. <laughs> But yeah, it, it, it's really, I feel, I feel like a parent, honestly, and it's a joy. It is a joy um, sharing that experience with her. And I, I absolutely recommend I mean, one of the challenges I had, and I probably it's more relevant to special guardianship and adoption, but I was pretty adamant <laughs> when I agreed to do this that, that the young lady take, took my last name. And that was for me to avoid the stresses of this country <laughs> because, you know, things are very legalistic here and you might go to this place and because she's mixed white and black British and my partner and I are both black British, um, you know, questions and the, the looks and the, when you travel, you deal with immigration. It was a paramount that I had her name changed to our last name. And trust me, life has been beautiful by just doing that. And I, I had no issues after that. Um, but yes, it's a pleasure, it's an honor, and I would highly recommend it. <laughs> yeah, I, I would totally agree with, with both of those. You know, it's, it's definitely a blessing. And I think that more people should <laughs> I you know and, and especially when you know I've heard that there's a, a need for more Caribbean and, and, and African foster carers and, and adopters you know I, I just think that it's important that that we do because it's, it's I think it's a responsibility of our community really you know as a community and as Christians you know I just think we need to it's our duty <laughs> to, to look after those who are in need, you know, and who needs more than children. You know, they are so vulnerable and they need that stability. And I think for me, why I went down the road of adoption and, you know, it's kind of like what you said um, about a name. What's in a name? You know, where it's belonging, something about belonging when you know that you belong to this family and that you're a part of this family, I think it's really crucial. And, and to be able to know that you have somebody that you can call at least mum, you know, 
mum and dad is, is great but at least mum I think it's just so important that's a gift <laughs> yeah I think and on the um the idea of name actually there's, there's two moments that just sprung into my mind then of of um absolute joy the joy that um Kisha was talking about that one was the first time that they they looked at us and called us mum that in, in a way we didn't we didn't force that we were quite happy with you know what they called us previously but actually when that previous name got dropped and they suddenly go oh well, mum oh, yes you know and 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 the second moment was that ours actually had their names changed by Depol before the adoption went through because they were starting school and the social workers decided it was best they had the right names well our our middle um daughter was absolutely no she said no she said I'm not that is not my name I will not be that person so we had to go back to the primary school and they had to rewrite all the books and the name take everything in this classroom and then about five hours before school started she walked down the street and oh, she said I feel like one of you now I'm going to change my name <laughs> and then, so we had to go back to the school and go really sorry and they changed it they were brilliant they changed it all back <laughs> but actually just that moment as I can still picture age four walking down the stairs going yep that's my name I'm part of your family and you think actually what a special moment that was <laughs> yeah. I can imagine there are just so many precious moments that you have you know, um, as they're growing. Morgan, did you want to ask a question? No, no, I wasn't going to ask a question. I was just going to say how nice of an insight it's been and the fact that hopefully this conversation will be a spark for someone who's been thinking or contemplating. Um, you know, we'll kind of give them that nudge to do a little bit more research and actually explore it for themselves as well. So it's been really lovely. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's just been it's been so good because it's something that I've definitely thought about so many times and it's like you know when is the right time to do these things you know when should we, you know but you know what I think this has been a really good conversation and like I said I read the article that said there was a 21 year old girl who actually decided that she was um, going to start fostering um, she had a good family support network she lives on a farm it's just ideal and she was like well you know my parents fostered or well, why can't I foster and you know and so that whole myth about well maybe I'm just too young to do it well actually you're not too young if you've got the means to do it then go for it you know um, Taff you know um, anything you want to add I mean he's the youngest member on this panel you know can I, can I just say just before Taff speaks please I think because, as you probably heard tonight, it changed all of our lives. Mm -hmm. um, for for my, for Catherine, obviously, she changed profession. For me, I changed profession somewhat. Um, it changes your life in more ways than one. So you have to have that self-resilience, as Toby was talking about as well, to be able to change with responsibility that you're now taking on. Mm -hmm. Just And just to add to that as well, you know, it's... I mean, I've I've not fostered or adopted or been an SDO carer for anyone, but I've, you know, worked with these young people. And honestly, it's just a privilege for me to just be able to even say that I've been their social worker. Mm. When you see what these kids have been through and just how they've actually come out of it, you just think, wow, you know, just how how resilient some children are and how, you know, they just, even just the, the beauty of being able to, you know, take a child out of a situation and, hearing a child actually say, I've had a child once say, I'm just so happy to be able to have light and to, be able to turn the lights on. Um, I'm so happy to be able to just have food in my belly. You know, literally a, a, a little child saying that, things that most children never have to think about or worry about and that be provided for them. 
is just yeah you know it's, it's, it's such a beautiful thing and there's so much joy and so much beauty I don't think I think people really don't appreciate how much they have to give to these children because some children just have had very little mm. and so there's so much you can give to the child absolutely yeah yeah I just think from the stories um you've all shared it just goes to show how much of a blessing children are and even more so that you've all managed to even just like create a bond with them and so yeah I think that's really special so thank you for all sharing your stories yeah. and I'm 21 next year so if I buy a farm you know where I'm going thank you so much everyone honestly this has been really, a really good conversation and like like I'm just going to echo what Morgan and Taka said and I really hope that someone's inspired to you know maybe contact us and get information or we can point you in the right direction, you know, and there's so many other things that we haven't actually discussed, you know, um, cause it's such a vast topic. So maybe we can like, you know, we can revisit this topic. If people have more questions that they want us to ask, you know, we can revisit this and, you know, hopefully bring some extra clarity and, you know, and just probably, be able to get voice. As a recommendation, probably look at them individually. Um, different. Um, aspects of foster care adoption and look at them individually mm. yeah to, to decide you know which part you'd go down but all equally rewarding and actually that's something something that I remember as well is like having sat on uh, being a part of the family support network um, they'll ask you before at the start what other likely outcomes for this child if they don't have this um they don't get a special guardianship order or they don't go you know what and 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 you know the outcomes look very bleak and then they then you you go back and you reassess and you say actually it's all looking very positive so just the fact that you can make such a positive difference in a child's life is just amazing so